You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Marie Kilmartin. Marie Kilmartin was 35 years old and she lived in Port Leash, a large town in the Midlands, but she was originally from Ballinasloe, County Galway. Marie shared a house with her best friend, Pat Doyle, who worked as a nurse in a local hospital. Marie spent her time volunteering at a local day centre for the elderly in the town. On Thursday the 16th of December, at about 4pm, Marie Kilmartin entered her home in Balad, not far from the centre of the town. Friends who also worked at the past day centre dropped Marie to her door that day, after a Christmas party had been held for staff and clients there. But when Pat Doyle arrived back home from her own shift that evening, the shared house in Balad was empty, the lights were off and the alarm set. A bag of shopping had been left by Marie hanging from the back of a chair in the kitchen, indicating to Pat that wherever Marie had gone, she hadn't intended to be that long. That said, Marie had told Pat that a number of the staff at the day centre were planning on meeting in a pub in the town for Christmas drinks, and Pat thought it was possible that Marie had decided to go. Barry Cummings, writing in his book Missing, said it was unheard of for Marie not to keep in touch and let Pat know where she was. And the very fact that Marie wasn't in was unusual. She was an anxious sort of person and didn't often go out on her own. Marie hadn't left a note for Pat either, which would have been their normal habit, to let each other know where they were. And so Pat waited on a phone call. Again, this was their usual routine and Pat expected that Marie would let her know where she was by ringing the house. But no call came and Marie never returned home. Within a few days, articles reporting her disappearance gave Marie's physical description. She was five foot two in height, of average build with short, dark blonde hair. She was thought to have been wearing a plum and grey two-piece suit with a greyish tweed coat and may have had on a pair of glasses. There was no indication that Marie had intended to leave her home for any period of time on the night of the 16th. She had all of her Christmas presents purchased and they were packaged up and ready for the holiday at home with her family. Marie had planned to travel to Ballinasloe a few days before Christmas, but there was no sign of her there either. Gardy made an appeal for anyone who had seen Marie between Thursday the 16th and a week later when reports began appearing in papers to contact them in Port Leash. Marie's family joined in that appeal, asking people to get in touch with the local police. The following weekend, friends of Marie's, as well as the Balad Neighbourhood Watch Group, assisted Gardy in their search efforts for the missing woman. But by New Year's Day 1994, Marie was still missing, and Gardy were asking locals to check any sheds or outbuildings in the Portleash area and for people who were out walking in the area to be vigilant for any signs of Marie. 
Gardy also made an appeal asking that anyone who had used a phone box on the Dublin Road in Port Leash near to an IBS bank on Thursday the 16th between a quarter to four and a quarter to five to come forward too, as a call placed from this phone seemed to be linked to Marie's movements on the 16th. Anyone who had used the phone around this time and might have seen someone queuing was of particular interest and confidentiality was also assured to anyone who may have tips. A fresh appeal was issued by her family at the end of January. Then, in early June, as summer finally started making itself known and the wet of the winter was being gently burned away, a man was out for a walk. On Friday the 10th, this man was making his way through Bogland along a small local path called Pim's Lane at Bourness, right on the Leash Offaly border, where turf cutting by locals was well underway. The lane was about half a mile from the road running from Mount Melick north to Port Arlington. But the pleasant walk was grimly interrupted when the walker came across the partially decomposed body of a woman in a bog drain. Gardie were notified and the area was sealed off. The following morning, the chief state pathologist, Dr Harbison, arrived on scene for a preliminary examination, but there was little to be gleaned as this woman's body was in poor condition. Superintendent Pat Walsh of Port Leash Garda Station stated that it was his impression that the body had lain there for some time. As it stood, there was no way to identify her, let alone ascertain cause of death from what had been found. The body was moved to Tullamore Hospital for post-mortem and a number of missing persons files were to be examined along with dental records in an effort to identify whose remains had been found. Among the files sent to Port Leash was one relating to a woman from Waterford who had connections in the Mount Mellick area, the file of Annie McCarrick, the American woman who had been missing for over a year and Marie Kilmartin, who had disappeared from nearby Port Leash six months before. Superintendent Walsh told the press that the investigators were keeping an open mind as to the identity of the person found, but noted that they were treating the death as suspicious. By Monday the 13th of June, it was established through the identification of personal items that the body that had been stumbled upon was that of Marie Kilmartin. Further details of how she had been found were revealed by the Evening Herald. The man who'd made the discovery of Marie's remains was an off-duty prison officer, and there had been a large concrete block lying across her body. The possibility that the block had played a role in her cause of death had not been ruled out. There were also further details of Marie's disappearance revealed too. When Marie had last been seen, she was said to have been in a distressed state. Gurdie appealed for a man who was seen speaking to a woman matching Marie's description in a churchyard in Port Leash on the night of the 16th, and a man who had been seen at the phone box the afternoon of her disappearance to come forward. It was thought both may have information relevant to the investigation. The search for information had also widened to include the area around where Marie had been recovered. Appeals went out for people who were local to the Bog Road and who may have dumped rubbish in the area, or who had any relevant information to make contact with the incident room at Port Leash. Marie's sister-in-law, Mary Kilmartin, told papers, quote, We have been devastated by her disappearance, which must have been something to do with that phone call because she would never have gone off on her own without telling her family. 
Confirmation came the following day that Marie had indeed been killed, though Chief Superintendent John O'Brien said that the precise cause of death had yet to be established. He said detectives on the case were following a number of lines of inquiry. But the Chief Superintendent warned that it might be some time before any conclusion as to what had happened and who was responsible could be reached. Chief Superintendent O'Brien told the press that it was strongly suspected whoever was responsible must have been local, firstly due to the place where Marie had been found. It was a small track only really used by hunters out shooting or by people cutting turf. It would be nigh on impossible for someone to know the track existed without good local knowledge. It wasn't a place thought likely for someone to simply stumble upon. Then there were the circumstances of Marie's disappearance. On the 16th, she had answered a phone call to her house, and significantly, her number was not listed in the phone book. It seemed on foot of this, she had left her home, and it was possible she had been seen meeting a man about 15 minutes later, at around a quarter to five. But Marie was known to be nervous, especially of leaving her home on her own when it was dark out. It was very out of character. Superintendent O'Brien said, quote, Marie was vulnerable to approaches and would have been at greater risk than the general population. The superintendent continued, quote, She must have had a good reason to leave the house and we can speculate that the caller was someone known to her and someone she may have trusted. She would have needed a very good and concrete reason to leave the house. The superintendent said he could not speculate on her psychiatric or mental health but said it would be fair to say that she was a vulnerable person. In his book, Missing, Barry Cummins reported that the call to Marie's home was made at 4.25pm and lasted two and a half minutes. It was the only call made from the phone box between 10 past 4 and 20 to 5 that evening. According to Cummins, the description of the male caller at the phone box came from a woman who had been attempting to hitch a lift on the same road. She had come forward to Gardee and said that she'd seen a man there at around half past four. This man was about 5'8 in height and around 30 years old. The following day, more details emerged when it was reported that though Marie had not gone home on Friday night, she was seen the following day in and around Port Leash. A witness had come forward to say that she had seen Marie at a quarter to twelve in a shop in the town. Ms Christine Dwyer said she had spoken to Marie while shopping in crazy prices, and that Marie had seemed to be in an agitated mood. Marie had asked Christine to come with her, but Mrs. Dwyer told Marie she was busy and couldn't go. Another sighting elsewhere in the town, outside the Midland Health Board building, also described Marie as being distressed. Chief Superintendent O'Brien said that there were a number of individuals who they believed had information regarding Marie's disappearance and death, and made a direct appeal to those people to come forward. Gardie were looking to confirm the possible sighting of Marie speaking to a man in St. Peter and Paul's churchyard on the evening of December 16th. The man was driving an old cream or beige car, and Marie had apparently leaned in through the window to speak with him. They also wanted anyone else who had seen the man in the phone box at about half past four to come forward. The phone kiosk was widely reported as being near to Portleach Prison, but it's perhaps equally as striking that it is not far from St. Fintan's Hospital, which is located directly across from the high-security jail. A new addition to the appeal was a green and white Daihatsu Jeep that was possibly seen in Pims Lane in late December or January. 
Investigators were looking for more information about that sighting, as well as appealing for a man who had made an anonymous call to the Garda station in Port Leash on the 11th of June, just after 9pm, to ring them back. He had told them about seeing a car at Portnahinch Bridge, not far from where Marie's body had been found. Gardy were also calling on anyone at all who had been in Pym's Lane in the previous seven months to make contact too. By that time, while Dr Harbison was still carrying out his post-mortem examinations, Gardy were working off the theory that Marie had been strangled, as there had been no visible or obvious evidence of wounds inflicted by a weapon apparent in Marie's autopsy, though there was still no conclusive cause of death. That evening, Monday the 13th of June, three days after the discovery of Marie's body was made, the flurry of appeals in her case were all broadcast nationally on RTE's Crimeline programme. And on foot of this broadcast, a number of tips came into Portleash Garda station relating to the man who was thought to have called Marie from the phone box in the town. Later, Superintendent Walsh would tell the Offaly and Westmeath Independent that the male caller who had told Gardie about a car that was seen at Portnahinch Bridge had also gotten in touch again as a result of the renewed appeals. Gardie were reported to be following a definite line of inquiry on foot of these phone calls. Meanwhile, house-to-house inquiries were carried out in the area near Mount Melek, where Marie had been found. Marie Kilmartin's funeral took place on the 14th of June in St. Michael's Church, Ballinasloe. Marie's parents, Fred and Rose, were prominent in the area. Her father had owned a car dealership in Ballinasloe with one of Marie's brothers following him into the car industry. Thousands of people attended Marie's Requiem Mass and many stood outside when the church reached capacity. During the Mass, the parish priest, Father Geraghty, said, We all shared a hope that she would turn up or be found alive, but that dim hope has been quenched by the grim and stark reality of her tragic, untimely and unwarranted death, which leaves our hearts heaving with grief and our minds reeling with shock. For why would anyone hurt someone who was as loving and gentle and full of kindness? Father Geraghty went on to thank Gardie and the people who had helped Marie's family on the Kilmartins' behalf. Later, Father Geraghty spoke to the press and noted that the area was in shock over Marie's death, a third trauma in the community which had recently seen the violent deaths of Patricia Galan and Father Joe Walsh, both killings still unsolved at that point. He said, quote, And a lot of people are very angry about how it could come to be that three people from the area have been killed and that there are murderers still on the loose. People would normally leave their key on the door now have their doors well and truly bolted. People are fearful of being by themselves. Then, two weeks after Marie's body was discovered, two arrests were made on the morning of Saturday the 25th of June. A man in his 50s and a man in his late 20s were brought to Garda stations in Abbey Leaks and Port Leash after Gardie arrived at their homes at 8 o'clock that morning. The two men were held under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act and were questioned for 12 hours. They were then released without charge. Gardie told the media only that the investigation into Marie's killing was still ongoing. The following week, 
Though there were no new developments in the case, the public were assured that the investigation into Marie's death was not being scaled down, and Gardy were still pursuing a number of leads in the murder inquiry. The inquest into Marie Kilmartin's death was opened on the 28th of July 1994. Superintendent Patrick Walsh told the coroner's court that criminal investigations into her killing were still ongoing and, as such, the inquest was adjourned. The county coroner, Dr Greeley, said in reference to Dr Harbison that he was sure that the state pathologist would not object to returning to Tullamore for a new date and said that the heir would do him good. Dr Harbison said he had no objections. But the date, set for November, came and went and soon it was a full year since Marie Kilmartin had disappeared from Port Leash. Investigations were still ongoing, but very little was heard of in the case in the press. In June of 1995, a year after the discovery of Marie's body in the bog drain off Pym's Lane, Dr Harbison travelled to Tullamore again and told the inquest into her death that Marie had likely been strangled. The six-month delay in her recovery meant that Marie had been initially identified through clothing and jewellery, and then with reference to dental records. In the wake of her discovery, Dr Harbison had made his way to Port Arlington Garda Station on the 12th of June, and had then gone to the scene, where he met with Garda Lyons. He had assisted in the removal of Marie's body from the ditch, and had moved the concrete block which was found on top of her. During his post-mortem examinations, an X-ray was taken of Marie's remains. Dr Harbison informed the coroner that damage to Marie's larynx and bilateral fractures to her thyroid cartilage supported his conclusion of strangulation. There were no other serious injuries observed during the autopsy. Harbison believed Marie had most likely been manually strangled. The pathologist also concluded that Marie had likely been killed shortly after her disappearance in December of 1993. Given the period of time involved, however, this was not something he could say for certain. Also giving evidence before the coroner's court was Mr Thomas Deegan. He was the prison guard who had discovered Marie's body. Mr Deegan told the court that on June 10th the year before, his son Trevor had been out footing turf in the Pims Lane area. At lunchtime, around 25 past one, Mr Deegan was on his lunch break from work at the prison and decided to bring the younger children with him while he went out to deliver tea to Trevor. He had his two-year-old with him and was watching her closely as she toddled along through the bog. It was as he was keeping his eye on her that Mr Deegan saw what he thought looked like a boot and a human leg. But given he was with young kids, he didn't want to scare them. Mr Deegan said he had made no mention of what he had seen at the time. He made the decision to come back later and investigate further. And so Tom told the coroner's court that at half past eight that evening, he had returned home from work and told his wife what he had seen. Thirty minutes later, he went back out to Pym's Lane. He saw a second boot and so contacted Gerda Tom Flynn. Garda Pat Lyon had arrived on scene and Mr Deegan had directed the guard out to the spot where Marie was ultimately discovered. The coroner, Dr Greeley, asked the witness if he knew what the condition of the drain would have been at the time of Marie's disappearance. Mr Deegan responded he thought it likely that it would have been full of water in the wintertime. Garda Pat Lyon gave evidence next. He said that he had received a phone call from Portleash Garda Station at 9.37pm on the 10th of June when he was stationed at Port Arlington. 
He was told that a body had been discovered near Bourness, and he responded to the area. There, he met Tom Deegan at the end of Pym's Lane and was brought to the drain. Garda Lyons said he had seen a body lying, quote, well down the drain, covered in parts of a pram and some canisters, and his initial impression was that the remains had been there for quite some time. The next day, Garda Lyons had assisted in the removal of the body to tell a more general hospital. Then, Detective Garda Pat Egan recalled that he had got notification of the discovery of the body at half past eleven on the night of the 10th of June. He had called to the scene the next morning and made arrangements for Dr. Harbison to be contacted. Detective Egan said that members from Garda Ballistics had carried out work in the area and photographs were taken by yet other Garda members. After the transportation of the remains to the hospital, Detective Egan recalled showing items of clothing found on the body to Ms. Patricia Doyle. She was Marie Kilmartin's housemate. The detective said that Ms. Doyle had identified them as belonging to Marie. Patricia Doyle herself appeared next. She said she worked at a nurse at St. Fintan's Hospital, Port Leash, and told the inquest that she and Marie had shared a house. She recalled having been shown items of clothing and jewellery in the morgue and said that she'd recognised them as Marie's. After this, Superintendent Noel McCarthy from Port Leash informed the inquest that the investigation into Marie's killing was likely to continue for some time. The jury at the coroner's court returned a verdict in accordance with the medical evidence that Marie Kilmartin had been strangled. The coroner, Dr Greeley, was joined by the foreperson of the jury and Superintendent McCarthy, who expressed their sympathies to the Kilmartin family and to Marie's friends and neighbours. In turn, a solicitor representing the Kilmartin family expressed their thanks to Dr Harbison and to the Gardee. Reports of the inquest into Marie's death were accompanied by an updated Garda appeal for a man who had called Portleash Station on the 16th of June to make contact again. But after this, Marie's name dropped from the papers for nearly a year. It was only during Operation Shannon in April of 1996 where Gardaí were attempting to curb violent attacks in rural Ireland that the killing of Marie Kilmartin was mentioned again. Superintendent Noel McCarthy, who took up that position after the initial investigation into Marie's case, said that her death was not thought to be linked to other violent crimes or unsolved murder cases that had taken place in recent years. Superintendent McCarthy went on to say that hers was the only ongoing homicide investigation in the Leash Offaly Division. Otherwise, according to the Nationalist newspaper, the superintendent said the division was doing well in keeping on top of serious crime and had in fact implemented measures outside of those required by Operation Shannon in order to prevent attacks in rural areas. In relation to Marie Kilmartin's case, he said the investigation had been hampered by a lack of forensic evidence and though the public cooperation with Gardy had been very good, he believed, quote, somebody somewhere must know something and has not told us. He commented further that it may be that vital information could be found through the investigation of an unrelated crime, which might bring Marie's case to a, quote, successful conclusion. It was noted that, against the national trend, crime figures for the Leash Offaly Division had decreased in recent years. Nearly 10 years later, in November of 2005, and marking the 10-year anniversary of the disappearance of another woman, 21-year-old Kilkenny native Jojo Dollard, Gardee said they were reviewing Marie Kilmartin's case. 
Thousands of leaflets were distributed in Dublin and Port Leash, seeking further information and outlining the details of not only the murder of Marie Kilmartin, but also the 1987 murder of 29-year-old Antoinette Smith and the 1991 murder of 29-year-old Patricia O'Doherty. The other two women's bodies were found separately in the Dublin mountains. These cases were featured in a Crime Stoppers appeal, along with high-profile cases of missing women, Jojo Dollard, Fiona Sinish, Kira Breen, Annie McCarrick and Imelda Keenan. A reward was offered, €10,000 for each of the cases featured, to anyone who could provide information in the cases. Alongside the others, Marie's case was being reviewed with the aid of a specialised database used to help solve violent crimes. Cormac Looney, writing for the Evening Herald, said that Gardie had four persons of interest in relation to various cases, but of course, details of which cases they pertained to was not revealed. A spokesperson for Crime Stoppers, Yvonne Highland, told the Irish Examiner that this was the first campaign of its size which the organisation had mounted in conjunction with Gardie. Previous leafleting campaigns had garnered good responses and the organisation was hopeful that there would be similar results with this expanded operation. Crime Stoppers would be providing a free-to-call anonymous phone line for anyone with tips relating to the eight cases being highlighted. Ms Highland went on to say, quote, There's people out there who have information in these cases. That's who we're appealing to. It's not too late to contact us. By doing so, you are guaranteed confidentiality. No names or addresses will be taken and substantial rewards are being offered for information. In the space of a week, Crime Stoppers had their largest rate of response to any of their campaigns, logging over 100 calls in that time. Shortly after the appeal was launched, Gardy revealed that they had plans to travel to Franklin Prison in Newcastle in the UK. They wanted to speak to a convicted murderer, a name familiar to us, of course, Robert Howard. The full story, or what parts of it can be confirmed, can be found in episode 97. In brief, though, Howard was in prison for the 2003 murder of Hannah Williams in London, where he had lived at the time. The 14-year-old was known to him. Howard strangled Hannah and left her in Wasteland. Robert Howard was also the prime suspect in the murder of 15-year-old Arlene Arkinson in Castle Dirk in 1994. Again, he lived in the area at the time and was known to the victim. Arlene was also strangled to death. Robert Howard had previous convictions for violent crimes, which included elements of sexual assault as well as rape. He was from the Midlands, Wolf Hill in County Leash, some 25 kilometres south of Port Leash, where Marie Kilmartin lived and was last seen alive. At the time of Marie's disappearance, Howard lived in Castle Derg, County Tyrone in Northern Ireland, but according to Cormac Looney writing for the Evening Herald, Gardie had reason to believe that he was familiar with the bogland north of Port Leash, between Port Arlington and Mount Mellick, where Marie's body had been found. A source close to the investigation told the reporter, quote, We need to eliminate him from our inquiries. We do not know his whereabouts at the time of Marie Kilmartin's death and he has to be quizzed about it. Given his propensity to roam around and target women, he will remain on our list until we talk to him. But two months later, by the end of 2005, no significant progress had been made in the effort to solve Marie's murder. 
New information had been uncovered in the extensive campaign and review of the various cases, but progress in the investigation remained stalled despite this. The following year, another appeal for information was launched, relating specifically to Marie Kilmartin's case, and timed to coincide with the anniversary of her disappearance 13 years before. The campaign was mounted this time not by Gardi or Crime Stoppers, but by someone who had to that point been entirely absent from Marie Kilmartin's public story. This was her daughter, 26-year-old Anya. Anya had been adopted as a baby. She had only found out that Marie was her mother six years before in the year 2000. Speaking to the Irish Independent in December of 2006, Anya noted that she had never gotten the opportunity to spend Christmas with her birth mother and continued, quote, All I have of my mother today is a few bits of jewellery, a jewellery box and two photographs. One of the items was a ring that had belonged to her mother, given to Anya by one of Marie's friends, which Anya now wore instead. Anya said she had spoken to a number of people in Port Lee who had known Marie, and they all had fond memories of her. Quote, I've been told she was great crack. She loved to sing and dance and was just a normal, happy woman. She had many friends in the town, and there's still a great shock as to how this terrible thing could have happened to her. She had no one to fear no enemies. However, Anya told the Irish examiner that she had met her birth mother. She'd been adopted by another member of Marie's family shortly after her birth in 1980 and had been 13 when Marie was killed. Though Anya had known she was adopted from a young age, she hadn't known Marie was her mother, not when she went missing and not when she attended her funeral. She had finally managed to get that information while out socialising with a group of cousins when Anya was 20 years old. After speaking to a number of people close to Marie, Anya had come to believe that Marie had not wanted to give her up, but Marie had not been allowed to keep her baby. Anya found out that Marie had been hospitalised, apparently suffering with serious depression, sometime before her birth. Marie had actually had her child in a mother and baby home, Shortly after, Anya had been sent to another institution where she stayed for a month before being adopted within the family. But growing up, the fact of the adoption was the only thing that Anya had been told. Speaking to Michelle McDonough for the Irish Times, Anya said, quote, The family was very closed, and I learned very early on not to ask questions. People wanted silence. They did not want questions to be asked. Eventually, Marie was returned to St. Fintan's Psychiatric Hospital in Port Leash after her time at the mother and baby home. After that, it took some time for her to be considered sufficiently recovered to leave the hospital, and it was then she had moved into the house in Port Leash and began living with Pat Doyle. Ms. Doyle had been one of Marie's former nurses, and the two had become close friends. Marie lived there with her for 13 years, until the day she disappeared. Meanwhile, Marie's baby was raised in Galway, but Anya told the Irish Times she had moved from home after completing her leaving cert and that her relationship with her adopted family had deteriorated in recent years. She told Michelle McDonough, quote, I didn't have a happy upbringing, to be honest about it. I always felt like an outsider in the family, but not with my father. He was the only one I felt loved by, but I don't want people to feel sorry for me. This is about my mother, not me. 
And so Anya had begun her search for her birth mother, but instead had found out that she was in search of very different answers to very different questions. This had now become a search to find Marie's killer and to bring that person to justice. Finding out that Marie was her mother was a shock, Anya told the Leinster Express. She had met Marie just a handful of times, but Anya also said that people had told her in the past how much she looked like Marie and recalled that at Marie's funeral she had been confused and maybe a little suspicious when Marie's best friend had approached her, hugged her and told Anya she was so sorry for her loss. She told reporter Ryan Dunn, I was like, sure, she's your best friend and you feel sorry for me? So I had a sense. I knew, but I didn't know. Anya also recalled, quote, When Marie saw me, her eyes would light up. I never understood why, but I understand now. To this day, I always think of those times when she did see me and how, looking at her own daughter, not being able to hold her as a daughter, and because of some hard-hearted person, she never got that opportunity and never will and I lost out as well. And so, in December of 2006, Anya had decided to go public with her story and was calling on people to think back on that time, to December of 1993, to try and recall if they had seen anything that might be relevant to the investigation into Marie Kilmartin's death. As part of this new campaign, leaflets with information about Marie's disappearance and death and her photograph were being distributed in Port Leash, and Anya had also set up a website asking for people to get in touch with information, not only in relation to Marie's case, but also other unsolved murders and missing persons cases. To support this, Anya had set up a charity called iMom, or In Memory of Marie. It was hoped that the website would help to increase public awareness not only of the missing persons cases themselves, but also the need to increase Garda resources in order to ensure that investigations into unresolved cases had dedicated Garda members working on them. Anya told the Leinster Express, quote, The Gardaí are hard workers, but they can only do so much with the time and resources they have. More evidence is needed, and it's not going to appear from nowhere after all these years. Once again, anyone with any information or who knew what had happened to Marie was urged to come forward with Anya asking people to think of what her mother must have gone through and to do the right thing. In a stark reminder of the reality of what had happened to Marie and of the person who was responsible for Marie's death, Anya commented to the Irish examiner, quote, The person who murdered her and then left her with a brick on her chest and a pram covering her must have a hard heart. I feel there's nothing that I could go through, and I've been through a lot that would give me such a hard heart to do something so callous to such a lovely woman. Four months later, in April of 2007, the National Crime Bureau of Investigation, or NCBI, began a review of the file on Marie Kilmartin's murder. All of the evidence gathered in the case was to be re-examined, and many of those who had previously given statements to Gardy were to be re-interviewed. A number of officers were assigned to the case on a full-time basis to ensure a comprehensive reinvestigation. According to reporter Jane Last, the Evening Herald understood that some of those who had given statements in the original investigation had more details to add. It was hoped that on foot of this undertaking, Gardee would be able to make an arrest in the case. Marie's daughter Anya spoke to Jim Cusack for the Sunday Independent in November of 2007. And in that article, it described the two people who had been questioned in the original investigation as the, quote, two main suspects. 
Anya told Jim Cusack that she believed that two people were suspected of assisting the perpetrator in the case by helping that person to create a false alibi. In this article, a purported guard a theory on the case was also outlined, that Marie had been taken somewhere on the night of the 16th, that something had happened that night, some sort of attack or assault, before Marie was returned home to Port Leash. It was then thought that the following day the same person had sought Marie out again and again took her away, this time killing her, in an effort to ensure she didn't report what had happened to her to authorities. Of those involved in her birth mother's murder, Anya told Jim Cusack, quote, How could they strangle her with their bare hands? Why are the people who know what happened continuing to cover it up? What sort of life could the perpetrators live? How can they live a normal life with this burden they carry? Four months later, the Leinster Express reported that the Garda reinvestigation into Marie's murder was at an advanced stage, after eight months of work, which saw hundreds of interviews and statements being taken. Another appeal was issued by Gardi for information in the case. Then, early on the morning of Monday, the 22nd of September, 2008, three people in Port Leash were arrested in connection with the killing of Marie Kilmartin. A 42-year-old man was brought to Portleash Station, while a man and a woman in their 60s were brought to Tullamore. One of those detained was being questioned in relation to Marie's murder, while the others had been arrested on suspicion of withholding information from Gardee. Gardee would not comment on whether the three people were related and were reluctant to describe this as indicative of a breakthrough in the case. It seemed in the press to be a significant development, as stated by reporter Connor O'Keefe for The Examiner. But Connor Ganley, writing for the Leinster Express, said that two of those arrested were members of the same family and were the same two men who had been questioned nearly 15 years before, in 1994. The older man and woman were reported as being a couple, and Ganley reported that the woman had never been brought in for questioning before. All three were released the following day on Tuesday night, however, after their period of detention had lapsed. The Irish Independent reported that Gardee said they were preparing a file for the DPP, but nothing came of it. In 2019, an application was made in the Central Criminal Court to allow Gardee to transfer video recorded with the so-called chief suspect in the case from video cassette tapes to DVD. This transfer would involve breaking an evidence seal on the tape and required court approval, which was granted. The press said that no admissions were made during these interviews. Michelle Hogan reported that it was expected that the case would be looked at by the National Bureau of Investigation's Serious Crime Review Team. Since that time, there have been no reported developments in the investigation into Marie Kilmartin's murder. It seems that the Garda investigation into Marie's killing has been stymied by issues earlier reported by Connor Ganley. There had been little to no forensic evidence recovered from Marie's body, and of course the place where Marie had actually been killed had never been identified. This left very little physical evidence available in the case. It's also unclear what the motive for Marie's murder might have been. At various stages, both robbery and sexual assault had apparently been ruled out. Anya has continued her campaign to find justice for Marie Kilmartin. She feels she's been blocked in her attempts to do this by both her family and the Gardee, and has made a complaint to GSOC regarding the Garda handling of Marie's case. 
anyone with information relating to the disappearance and murder of Marie Kilmartin is asked to contact Portleash Garda Station at 057 867 4100 or to call Crime Stoppers on 1 800 250 025. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mens Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week goes out to Mark Galvin, Rebecca Kinecki, Faye Wicks, Taylor Nelson, Glenda Hernandez, Elaine O'Mahony, Anya Sweeney, Tanya Maleski, Darren King, and Lisa Matassa. If you'd like ad-free, bonus episodes, nifty merch, or my undying love, head on over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so... Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.